thank you very much for uh, showing up even even later on a Friday afternoon and uh, know that as uh, Dr. Klein said earlier that weariness does tend to set in toward the end of the week but you're doing a great job and I'm hoping to uh, keep you awake here a little longer with a talk on something I imagine most or all of you are personally interested in, which is higher education. And I'm going to focus here on the United States, although a lot of this would apply to other countries that have similar policies to the United States. Um, last year I gave this talk and I had three separate crises affecting higher education in the United States. One was that college doesn't do what it advertises. Um, second was that government subsidies are um, messing up the educational process. Third, that um, there's this cancel culture. I didn't call it that at the time, but that there's a, a uh, problem emerging on college campuses with speech um, and, and protests oriented around trying to get certain speech canceled. But now I've got another crisis to add to the list. So I've got to, um, I'm going to probably not say very much today about cancel culture, and I may say a few things toward the end, but um, higher education is in trouble. It is in deep trouble. It's been in trouble for a while, and I think the recent events have exacerbated those problems. And um, a lot of what I'm going to do here, especially with respect to the first and second crisis, comes from Richard Vedder's book that came out last year, Restoring the Promise. Uh, it's a great book. I'm slowly writing a review of this book. Um, it should have been done a long time ago, but uh, it's, a, it's a great, great treatise on a theme that, that Professor Vetter has written on before. Lots of updated statistics, some of which I'll share with you here today. The first thing I'm going to talk about, though, with you here is uh, what college does versus what it is commonly reputed to do, which are two very different things. Um, you have likely been told that you need to go to college because this is good for your, your long-term career and income prospects and, and so forth. And you need to go because you're going to learn things. This is what you're going to learn, right? So, what is it that college actually does? Now, what college advertises is that we're in the business of transferring knowledge and wisdom and the, uh, the ability to think carefully and rationally and wisely about social issues and conveying, conferring some, some technical skills as well. So this, this is what college is advertising. Uh, but that may not be the only thing that it does, and in fact, it may not be the most significant thing that college does. College may be a signaling mechanism. That is, it may simply be a way for people to display to a potential employer that they have certain characteristics. Maybe college is less about stuffing things inside your head and more about um, getting a certificate that says, this is, this is the kind of person I am. A person that you might have been when you walked in the door the first day, the freshman year. 
So maybe this is about signaling, or maybe a uh, third possibility is that it's a consumption good for higher income individuals, which would be borne out if we look at the way colleges have spent great uh, 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 sums of money on recreational facilities for their residential students and um, athletic events and concerts and uh, essentially spas and very luxurious dormitories and other things for their students. So, uh, social activities are a big reason that people might attend college as well. So these three things are uh, part of the college and university experience. Now, um, colleges and universities, defending their existence, will say, well, you know, look at the difference between incomes for those who went to college versus those who did not. And so this chart or, or graph here shows the probability of being in a certain educational group for a given income level over a several year period. And uh, that large purple area at the top is the area uh, designating college graduates. And you can see that that is approximately 80% of those making over $150,000 a year that are college graduates. Whereas if you go down to the lower end of the income spectrum, only maybe 15% or 20% of those in that low-income group are college graduates. Uh, those who are high school graduates only, that would be the red group, are a relatively small number uh, or proportion of those making high incomes and a much larger fraction of those making low incomes. So this, this is part of the defense of college as a human capital kind of um, kind of uh, process. You're, you're getting the knowledge necessary to have the skills to earn a lot of income. Uh, also, if you look at um, mean or median earnings, uh, this is from 2016. You can see that those who have higher levels of education, masters, doctors, professional degrees, uh, tend to earn much higher incomes than those who have only a high school diploma, who attended some college but then dropped out. Uh, and, and, and so this, again, is the kind of things that um, college uh, admissions offices will mention and your, your uh, relatives will probably tell you you need to go to college because that's what you'll need to do to earn a high income and, and so forth. And also, it looks like, although Vetter addresses this somewhat critically in his, in his book, it looks like college is a good investment. You spend four years of your life or more. You uh, spend a lot of tuition money. You uh, for, forego the money that you could have earned in some uh, job that you could have had or entrepreneurial venture you could have had right out of high school. Um, that's, that's four years that is quite expensive. And yet, um, it looks like the rate of return is pretty high if you consider the higher incomes that are available to people with higher levels of education. However, there are some problems with this. One is that we seem to be educating a lot of people more than what is actually necessary for the jobs that they ultimately end up doing. So this is a chart, one of several that I'll show you from Vetter's book, uh, showing that uh, the education requirements of occupations held by college graduates are almost half less than a college education. That is, you could do that job with a high school diploma or less, 
or maybe some college but not a four-year degree. So we're over-educating for the kinds of work that people are doing. Uh, here you see the number of jobs requiring a college degree versus the number of college graduates. On the left there you have the jobs requiring a college degree, 28.6 million. The number of employed college graduates, 41.7 million. We've got a lot of people who are in the workforce with a college degree that did not need a college degree to do what they are, they are doing. We keep churning out more and more of these college graduates for what exactly? And here's what some of them are doing. And by the way, let me just issue a caveat here. This is not a you should drop out of college speech, okay? I'm not saying that this, doesn't, this process doesn't make sense for some people. I'm suggesting that this doesn't make sense for as many people as are actually going through the process, okay? So here we have taxi drivers, shipping and receiving clerks, sales clerks, firefighters, carpenters, bank tellers. In 1970, that's the dark uh, bar or column there, you had very, very few taxi drivers, shipping and receiving clerks, firefighters, carpenters, et cetera, who were uh, college graduates. That's uh, 50 years ago. In 2010, 40 years later, we have enormous numbers of people who are doing these jobs that don't require bachelor's degrees that have, in fact, gone through an expensive four-year process. So, Vetter thinks about, you know, why, why is this? Why are, we, why are we spending so much, so many resources? Why are we encouraging people? Why are guidance counselors in, in high schools encouraging students to go to college when, in fact, this may not be necessary for many of them? Uh, part of it is a kind of an over, overbidding. Uh, if you are a... Um, uh, fast food, not, maybe not a fast food restaurant, but you're, you're some kind of restaurant and you're looking for employees and you get, you know, uh, 100 applications for a job and you're, you're trying to filter through the, the applications. Uh, well, one easy filter is who's got more education? You know, just throw out all the ones that have uh, less than high school education, even though less than high school might still be perfectly fine for the kind of job. That is 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 that you're hiring for, so maybe part of this is just it's a filtering process for from the employer standpoint. You don't really need to have somebody who's got an anthropology degree to be able to manage the uh, Panera Bread Company, but uh, well, you know, we need a manager, and and this this person here has the four-year degree, so um, we're going to take that as a signal that this person is a go-getter to some extent, because they could, they could stick with this four-year project of getting a college degree. And even though the subject matter is completely irrelevant to what we need this person to do, at least it demonstrates this person has some stick-to-itiveness. They, they, can, they can stick to, to a long-term project, carry it out. They, they probably are literate. They, uh, they, have, they have some skills that we, we think might be important for for being a manager, just we know, we know this just because they've got this, this certificate that says they went through this process. It also means this person is, is uh, uh, able to show up on time, at least somewhat, although 
I can tell you as a college professor, not all of my students have that skill. Um, so here's what, here's what college education might be doing. It's a filter to some extent, I mean, to the extent that we're not actually conveying knowledge. And I, I like to think, maybe I'm deluding myself, but I like to think we're conveying knowledge too. But it's a filter, at least in part. So you have the population, general population, and, and some of these are, are, uh, uh, have red characteristics, some of them have, have blue characteristics. This is not political, red states and blue states kind of thing. This is just different characteristics. Um, I think the way I'd set this up, the blue, blues are people who are motivated, who are persevering, who are intelligent. The reds are people who are not so motivated. They're rather undisciplined with the use of their time. Uh, maybe the, their intelligence is not so great. So you've got this two, these two groups in the general population. So some of them end up going into this filtering process, this filter for motivation, perseverance, and intelligence, and they either pass or fail. Either they get filtered out or they pass through the filter. So those who pass are being certified as motivated, persevering, and intelligent. And now some people may get through the filter that are not, in fact, motivated, persevering, and intelligent. But it does at least help someone who doesn't know anything about the, the job applicant in front of them to know something about whether this person is more likely or less likely to be motivated. Some people uh, fail the, the filter. Now, you know, Bill Gates dropped out of college, too. Doesn't mean he was unmotivated or unintelligent or anything. I mean, he, he quit, and he had better opportunities. There's nothing necessarily uh, wrong with making that decision to drop out of college. People regard that as being a, you know, you failed something. But when I say you fail or drop out, that's, that's not necessarily a saying anything about your character or your abilities. Um, there are other people that bypass the filter completely. We used to have a lot more people that just bypassed the filter. They said, well, you know, I've got enough motivation, intelligence, and so forth to make it on my own without having to go through this certification process to prove, or at least to, to indicate, that I've got this, this set of characteristics. So this is the way the system might work if it is about signaling, but what we've seen happen, especially since World War II, but um, in, in, in several instances since then, the government has injected large sums of money. One of the first injections from the federal government was the so-called GI Bill. And this injection of federal money began to alter this system. It changed the incentives. So it taxes people, and then it subsidizes those who decide to enter the filtering process. So the filter becomes less effective. If you can imagine in a kind of an engineering or hydraulic sense, you put a lot of pressure of air or water going through an air or water filter, you're going to get a lot more stuff that gets kind of forced through that doesn't re you don't really want to be forced through. So um, you, maybe, you maybe get a lot of people who end up passing the filter who are not actually motivated, persevering, and intelligent. But nevertheless, they get certified as such. And the colleges and universities are incentivized to pass these people through, at least to some extent. They, you know, you, you fail that person out, you no longer get those tax-subsidized tuition payments. And colleges that, especially colleges that are very enrollment-driven, which many of them are, 
You lose that enrollment, you lose that student, and you lose that tuition payment. So colleges have an incentive to bend over backwards to get this person to stick around and uh, maybe they're one of those people that stays around an extra year or something, but we're going we're to try to get that person through because that person has, uh, has federally subsidized or state subsidized dollars. And the only way to get those dollars is to keep that person enrolled as a student. I realize this is a cynical perspective, uh, but bear with me. Of course, you're used to this kind of thing. Um, fewer people end up trying to bypass the filter because now the, the people who are at the margin otherwise would say, I don't have much to gain by trying to go through this filtering process. Now, because they are not having to pay the full cost, they end up going into the filter. Uh, Ryan Kaplan wrote a book on this uh, kind of thing a couple of years ago. Uh, saying, once workers have been ranked, giving everyone extra years of education is socially wasteful. Furthermore, since the status quo is supported by hundreds of billions of dollars of subsidies, we are probably underusing alternative certification methods like apprenticeships, testing, boot camps, and so on. Uh, some of you are getting a certification coming to Mises U. I saw some of you with certificates that indicated that you had gone through Judge Napolitano's course here. Um, that's an alternative certification mechanism. But federal and state subsidies discourage people from seeking out those alternative certifications and encourage them to go through this kind of, this kind of process that I described. Kaplan says, signaling explains why students are far more concerned about grades than actual learning. They want easy A's, not professors who teach lots of job skills. Signaling explains why cheating pays. A successful cheater profits by impersonating a good student, and signaling explains why students readily forget course material the day after the final exam. Once you've got the good signal on your transcript, you can usually safely forget whatever you learned. So Kaplan says we don't need as much education, and I would substitute the word schooling here. We don't need as much schooling as people actually are pursuing. He says the cleanest way to get far less education or schooling is to sharply cut government education spending. Employers will no longer expect you to have the education you can no longer afford. In other words, spending cuts will cause credential deflation. You'll again be able to get a low and middle school job with a high school degree or less. My maternal grandfather had an eighth grade education and he did fine. He provided for his family with three kids. They did. They did all right. He grew up um, without a lot of wealth. He, his uh, family was um, uh, Alabama tenant farmers who had grown cotton in rural Alabama for um, years and years, actually lost a lot, of, a lot of money in the Great Depression, lost, essentially lost the farm in the Great Depression. He got an eighth grade education and went to work. And that, at that time, it was not nearly as uncommon for someone to be able to do that. So what does education <clears throat> actually produce? And, and for the next little bit here, I'm going to rely on my friend Jonathan Newman, who wrote a great piece for Mises Wire uh, several years ago on why college degrees are becoming useless. A strange, strange headline for 
people like us, uh, Jonathan and I, who, who, who are college professors, we make our living off of this. And here I am telling you that what college professors do is not as valuable as is commonly reputed. But he says, graduates have little to no improvement in critical thinking skills. At some of the most prestigious flagship universities, test results indicate the average graduate shows little or no improvement in critical thinking over four years. And employers, especially some of those that are highly reputed employers that people want to work for because that looks great on their resume, they don't care if hires have a college degree. They are looking for other characteristics, measurable characteristics that can predict job performance. My understanding is Google had, had billboards that with complicated math problems on them and, and that said things like, if, if you can solve this, give us a call, give our H, HR department a call. They're looking for those kinds, of, those kinds of skills and the degree to them does not matter as much. At Yale College, where 62% of grades are in the A range, some of you don't probably never heard of Garrison Keillor and the, his radio show on NPR for many years uh, about Lake Wobegon, and his description of Lake Wobegon was that um, you know all the children are above average, and uh, so. Arthur Levine found in a national survey that 41% of students had grade point averages of A minus or higher in 2009 compared to just 7% in 1969. Is that because everybody is smarter now than we were in 1969? I've been around higher education for a while now. Not as long as some people here, but I've been teaching in higher education, if you count my graduate school years where I taught as a TA, um, almost 25 years, and I don't think my students are getting smarter than... <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think the, the raw materials sitting in front of me in the, in the desks are smarter than they were 20 years ago. Um, just to put this in graphical terms, the red line is what I want you to pay attention to here. This is the this is the grade distribution, and the red line are the A's. This goes back to 1940. And then there's a big jump there over 21 years to 1961. But from 1940 to 1961, you know, about 15% of students were getting, getting A's. You had to really be in the top of your class. But by 2012, that had, that had increased to like 45%, almost half of students are getting A's. Now, there's a lot of pressure, I can tell you, there's a lot of pressure on college professors to give high grades. Students will show up in my office and say, you know, if I don't get a, a whatever in your class, I'm gonna lose my scholarship, which is a scary prospect. My college is not cheap. Uh, they, they might lose their eligibility for a government-subsidized grant or uh, other source of funds because third-party payments, as in medical care, which I discussed earlier this, this week, third-party payments have become very important in college education. Many students almost have to borrow or get a scholarship. They're, 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 the intense competition for scholarships 
is something we once did not see as much of. People are, students are not spending as much time on their academics. I know this is shocking to you. You all study 30 hours a week, I'm sure, when, when you go back to your colleges and universities. But, but actually, we, we find that students are, are not spending as much time. Uh, from, in 1961, students spent 40 hours a week studying. By 2003, that I dropped below 30 hours a week. Um, and that would count not just time out of class, but time in class as well. So, all right, moving on. Second crisis, government subsidies, which I mentioned already, are backfiring. And part of the reason I say they're backfiring is that the students themselves are not seeing lower uh, post-subsidy prices for their higher education. Now, um, according to Bloomberg, college tuition and fees have increased 1,120% since records began in 1978. The rate of increase in college costs have been four times faster than the increase in the consumer price index. Again, very similar to what I mentioned earlier in the week about medical care. Um, medical care prices have increased much faster than, than inflation, and again, for similar reasons. I, last night, I was putting the final touches on this presentation, and so I, I pulled a screenshot of the student loan debt clock. Um, last year, when I gave this talk, I showed the debt clock, and it was $100 billion less. Um, and in fact, if you pull this up, and the link is at the bottom of that slide there, but if you pull this up, you'll see a larger number than that. I don't know how much, but I, I, was, I was screenshotting this, and it, it's like, okay, this, do I wait another minute for this to tick over another $100 million? Or to, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll forget it, I'll just screenshot it. So, um, and it, I mean, it's moving as I'm, as I'm sitting there. This $1.7 trillion of student loan debt, and this is a problem, uh, partly because of default rates, which I may, may mention later. Back to uh, uh, something from Jonathan Newman on, on Mises.org here. Uh, Jonathan, I'm borrowing a lot of your work. I appreciate it very much. Uh, here's tuition, um, the red line, versus the consumer price index, the blue line. You can see there the uh, rapid increase in tuition prices, especially uh, about, I guess that's about uh, first decade of this century. Um, 2000 to 2006 or so, you're seeing a pretty substantial increase in the slope of that, of that tuition line uh, for public four-year institutions. Um, here is, if you want to think about affordability and not just the raw price, this is a chart showing the average tuition um, related to median household income. So household incomes have been rising too. So that would mitigate some of the impact of a higher tuition. But we see that even if you're looking at college tuition as a fraction of household income, it's still rising. Uh, now, part of this, you can, you can probably see those, those kind of blue shaded columns there, which tend to connect a bit with recessions that we've had where household income was not increasing very much, but tuition, um, in, in fact, household income was, was falling, and tuition 
kept, either kept rising or stayed the same. It didn't fall to match the lower incomes of, of households. And so we're seeing this increase so that by, by 2011, 2012, uh, tuition and required fees for four-year degree-granting institutions were over one-fourth of median household income. I've got three kids in college right now. Um, and it would be impossible for me to be able to afford to pay the tuition. Uh, the only thing that saves me is that I teach at a college where my kids can go for free. Well, for tuition free, there's other fees, but um, otherwise there's no way. I mean, it, three kids in college all at the same time, it's, it's financially, it's a nightmare. So, um, Households are finding colleges less and less affordable. And again, this brings in the third parties. You know, people are borrowing more and more money to go to college. And part of this is um, troublesome because of the default rate. These are different kinds of loans going back to 2004 up through 2017, different kinds of loans and the delinquency rates on those loans. So we got student loans, which are the red. Uh, credit card loans, other kinds of loans, mortgages, car loans, home equity lines of credit. And we can see, of course, during and immediately after the last recession, or i got to stop saying that because we're apparently in a recession now, um, but the 2008-2009 recession, um, you can see that the default rates spiked for a lot of different kinds of loans, but uh, about 2012 or so, it looked like student loan default rates shot up and have not really dropped very much. And they are now the highest default rates of all of those categories of loans. And part of this is, again, because federal aid and, 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 and the federal loans don't take account of creditworthiness in the same way that private sector loans, fully private sector loans do. So you can, you can qualify for student loans where at a, at a, uh, a rate that you, you couldn't qualify for those same loans of other, other types. And so colleges respond to this, this just Niagara Falls of, of cash flowing into uh, colleges and universities by what? Giving students discounts? <laughs> Lowering tuition? Oh, look, all this federal money's coming down the, down the pike. We, uh, we can give students a break now. No. Tuition has gone up. Now, there are several studies. I'll go through these here with you very quickly. Some research to try to figure out how much is tuition rising in response to dollars of federal, federal aid. Now, William Bennett um, proposed what, what's now become known as the Bennett Hypothesis, which says that you increase financial aid, colleges and universities will simply follow by increasing their tuitions. And have we seen this? Well, uh, once 2000, one 2007 study says um, that uh, they did not find very much evidence of the Bennett hypothesis for in-state tuition for public universities, but they did find evidence of it for private universities where Pell Grants appear to be matched nearly one for one by increases in list and net tuition, 
Results for out-of-state tuition for public universities are similar to those for private universities, suggesting they behave more like private ones in setting out-of-state tuition. A uh, more recent study, 2012, by Nicholas Turner, says that intended cost reductions of tax-based federal student aid are substantially offset by institutional price increases for four-year colleges and universities. Tax-based aid crowds out institutional aid roughly dollar for dollar, whereas the university might have given students kind of an in-house uh, scholarship. Now they cut back on those in-house scholarships and require the student to give over the uh, federal or state, or uh, federal aid in this case. So the student is left with no real break here. The tuition is going up at least as fast as, as, the, uh, uh, as the, the um, federal student aid. A 2013 study uh, published by the NBER says, we find that Title IV institutions Charge, charge tuition that is about 78% higher than that charged by comparable institutions whose, inst whose students cannot apply for federal financial aid. A 2017 study, we study the link between student credit expansion of the past 15 years and the rise in college tuition. We find a pass-through effect of about 60 cents on the dollar and smaller but positive effects for unsubsidized federal loans. The subsidized loan effect is most pronounced for more, for more expensive degrees, those offered by private institutions and for two-year or vocational programs. Another study, um, uh, oh, I, I guess I skipped that. Um, but uh, so what are, what are colleges and universities doing with all of this money? They're reaping the benefits of this federal aid College is not becoming more affordable for students as a proportion of median income and in, in absolute terms. So what are they doing with the money? Well, part of it is going to non-academic student amenities. So colleges are, as a proportion of your tuition dollar, less and less of it is going to learning things and more of it is going to make sure you have a great time while you are on campus. So Princeton University spent $136 million on a student dormitory with leaded glass windows, an oak dining hall, $300,000 per bed. NYU has provided $90 million in loans, many of them zero interest and forgivable, to administrators and faculty to buy houses and summer homes on Fire Island and the Hamptons. It's nice to be in college administration, evidently. Uh, former Ohio State President Gordon Gee earned nearly $2 million in compensation. This is last year. This would have been 2012. This is from another earlier work by Richard Vetter while living in a 9,600-square-foot Tudor mansion on a 1.3-acre estate, 673,000 dollars in art decor, $532 shower curtain in a guest bathroom, $23,000 a month for his parties, half a million dollars for him to travel the country on a private jet. Now, I have nothing, about, nothing against private jets expensive shower curtains. But where's this money coming from? 
Colleges have also used the gusher of taxpayer dollars to hire more administrators, administroids, as I think better calls them. Uh, the University of California system employs 2,358 administrative staff in just the president's office. If you look at the number of administrators at a typical college or university and the number of faculty, you will find the number of faculty, especially in a per-student sense, have, has not increased all that much, maybe even declined a bit. But administrators, deans and deanlets, and we're multiplying these, these, these people. Now, I'm glad for some of them. I'm glad to have many of them around. They help me when my, um, I, I need help with some you know, technological problem in my classroom, or I, there's a person I can call if I want to apply for a grant, and they'll help me with that and that kind of thing. It's, it's, that's, I'm not bashing all of them, but the, the increase is just stunning how many of these people there are now. And, and, and I, many of them, I, I think, well, what is exact? It's like that, um, that office space. What would you say you do here? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm just, I'm befuddled, frankly, at what, what do they, how do they justify their existence? <laughs> Vetter says 30% of the adult population has college degrees. The Department of Labor tells us that only 20% or so of jobs require college degrees. We have 115,520 janitors in the United States with bachelor's degrees or more. Why are we encouraging more kids to go to college? Uh, so he says, in, in housing, we had these artificially low interest rates before the last housing market bust. The government encouraged people with low qualifications, low bad credit to buy a house. Today, we have low interest rates on student loans. We're encouraging people to go to college who are unqualified, just as it encouraged people to buy a home who were unqualified with, with regard to their credit. So he suggests that we need, to, we need to disinvest in higher education. This takes us to for-profit education, which got a um, bad reputation a number of years ago because um, many of the students who end up in for-profit institutions are students that you might, you might say are non-traditional students. They're not the 18 to 22-year-old residential students who are still uh, likely being supported heavily by their parents. These are students who have a lot of things going on in their lives. They may um, be married, they may have kids, they may have a job that takes 40, 50 hours a week. They're trying very hard to get ahead and they're trying to get a, an education to help them with that. And they've got a lot of stuff going on in their lives, um, a lot of commitments that they can't easily ditch to just study. Um, so these are students that are of a different category, and they've got a lot of challenges. And sometimes those challenges are financial because they've got all these commitments. But And, and so for-profit institutions were seeing a lot of students go through, they get their degree, but then they end up defaulting on their student loan debt. And the, the, uh, many people were looking at these for-profit institutions and saying, aha, see, it's the profit motive that's the problem here. If you weren't just after the almighty dollar, then you wouldn't be giving degrees to people who 
um, had these financial challenges. You wouldn't be creating these financial challenges with the student loans that, that they're qualifying for. We have a long history of for-profit education in the United States. In 1897, more than 92% of college students were enrolled at for-profit institutions. In 2016, while 15% of for-profit student borrowers on a federal loan have defaulted since 2013, 7% of students at private schools and 11% of borrowers at public schools defaulted in the same period. So it's a, it, there is a disproportionate default rate for students that have come through uh, for-profit institutions. But again, it's, it's apples and oranges in a sense because we're looking at a different kind of student with more, they've already got financial challenges in many cases. So it's not, the, to look at default rates without considering that I think is to uh, treat for-profit education unfairly. So the Wall Street Journal, um, uh, Sorry, this, this is, uh, is, is uh, A.G. Smith in the, in, on Mises.org said that the giants of for-profit education have grown fat on a steady diet of government credit by cleverly maneuvering their way through a vast field of regulatory landmines to take advantage of federal aid programs aimed at helping those they ultimately hurt. That is, the, aimed at helping the students that the federal aid programs ultimately, ultimately hurt. Uh, as expected, many have ignorantly aimed their weaponry at the profit motive instead of unleashing their fury on the root cause, which is government interference in the market. So you can expect that if you've got a massive third-party payer funneling large amounts of taxpayer dollars into education, you're going to distort the educational process, that profit motive, may end up being distorted in a, in, a, in, a, in a manner similar to what we sometimes call crony capitalism, where you, you have a, a firm that figures out how to extract as many taxpayer dollars as they can. Uh, and as with, again, as with medical care, sometimes the doctor or the hospital is paying more attention to what Medicare or Medicaid want rather than what the patient wants and needs. What is, and here we ought to be thinking about what does the student want and need, but that's being distorted by the federal aid, not by the practice of trying to achieve uh, profit here. Um, so you may, I showed this last year, it's, this, this particular thing is not new, but it's, it's, just, it's a concern. We, we, may, we may have a kind of bubble developing. And uh, we now have a new concern, which I'll take the last couple of minutes to talk about here, which is the stress being placed on colleges and universities. And, and I don't mean the institution itself alone. I mean the students are being stressed by this kind of, um, th this pandemic that we are now dealing with. Um, Universities and colleges were already struggling in many ways before any of this and the economic consequences of government lockdown. And now it is, uh, it is creating, you might even say, a perfect storm of trouble for these institutions. Jenna Robinson from the James Martin Center said, before COVID-19, universities were already beginning to experience an enrollment decline, mostly fueled by demographic changes, fewer kids in that age group. 
The current crisis will raise existential questions for small and mid-tier institutions. Only universities with, math with massive endowments and highly competitive in admissions will escape the effects of the coming enrollment cliff. We are having to fundamentally change some things in education. Um, content delivery is having to change. Where I teach Wofford, we have had no online-only courses until this past summer where summer school courses had to be delivered entirely online and, and half of the spring semester was entirely online. This is very new for a lot of people. Uh, many of my colleagues are just struggling to try to get up to speed on the technology and, and I think we're making a lot of progress in that way but it's, it's, been, it's been difficult. It's been difficult for students. I mean, Zoom fatigue is a real thing. And it's hard for us to kind of gauge from looking at a one inch by one and a half inch square or rectangle on a, on a screen whether that student is getting what we're saying or even if they're there. <laughs> uh, apparently there was this trick that some students learned in the K through 12 crowd and maybe it linked over, or, or leaked over into the higher ed where uh, students created a, a, a background that said something like logging in and they posted that up and it looked like they were trying to log in apparently, but they just never showed up for class. And my, uh, my wife was teaching online. She's a K through 12 teacher and she, uh, she said there were students who would try to particip participate in class while on their trampoline out in the backyard, you know, holding their phone. And uh, I, had, I had what I called a rule of verticality. You had to be vertical. On, on the screen, I had to see you, and you, you could not be like on your pillow. You had to be vertical. I mean, is it, I'm like a bare minimum requirements here. Show up, be vertical. <laughs> uh, but it, it was interesting, and I, I think I've learned a lot, and I think a lot of us who are not accustomed to teaching that way have learned a lot, and students have certainly learned a lot uh, about the process. Um, if not the content. So um, some fields of study are really having a more difficult time. I can teach economics, I think, pretty well online compared to, say, somebody trying to teach chemistry with no lab. Uh, you can simulate some lab experiments, I'm told, but that's difficult. Uh, residential colleges and universities are facing constraints on some of the activities that make students want to attend on campus. This is really bothersome to, to those who are, you know, part of why they were going to college was they wanted to learn something or at least to get a signal as we discussed, but they also wanted the social events, the athletic events, they wanted to, you know, get away from their parents and live in a dorm instead of living in their parents' house. They wanted to have opportunities to meet other people face to face. Uh, they wanted Greek life. They wanted um, all of these kinds of opportunities that you can't get sitting in your parents' dining room staring at a laptop screen for several hours a day. I don't think that face-to-face -face education is going to be killed off by COVID-19, partly for that reason. I think the fundamental demand is, good or bad, is, is, I mean, whether it's signaling or knowledge acquisition or, uh, I think that that, that that is still going to be around for, for some of those reasons. Students really want those kinds of opportunities. 
Colleges and universities that have already had an online program have an advantage. There are some universities that have truly massive online programs, and they, they'll fare relatively well in this. Um, and I think the time is ripe for online education to really shine where people can try to do that well. I'm very pleased to see the Mises Institute creating a, a master's program, and um, I'm, I'm very excited about that, and I, I hope that things um, improve for online education, partly because I want to see these alternatives succeed. Um, I don't think the underlying demand for higher education has really changed all that much. Um, some students may be taking gap semesters or gap years or something to try to wait out the coronavirus, but um, uh, let things get back to normal. And it certainly, it's going to be an interesting year, academic year ahead of us. But um, anyway, I, uh, I have, I really like doing what I do as a professor. Um, I think my students enjoy the process of going through a college education for a variety of reasons, some good, some not quite as noble, but um, uh, I'm very pleased, frankly, to see you here and many of you watching this online that are seeking out those alternatives that we need to have to a system that is being broken by government. Thank you very much.